Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and gather and go through your word. We ask you to guide and lead us. Let us see what you would want us to see from this section. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Isaiah chapter 54, starting at verse 1. Sing, O barren, you that did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and set your, and let them stretch forth the curtains of your inhabitation. Spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left hand, and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles." and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be you confounded, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth, and shall not remember your reproach of your widowhood any more. Your maker, for your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And, the, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called." For the Lord hath called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of, of youth when you have were refused, saith the Lord. For a small moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I have gathered you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy upon you, saith the Lord your Redeemer. So I want to stop there because there's a lot here in this section to, to look at. It starts out, sing, O barren, you that did not bear, break forth into singing, cry aloud, you that did not travail with, travail with children, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the Lord. This is very interesting. God says, sing. And this, is, this word for sing is a loud, excited cry. It's also used for the cry of a war cry. So this is not just a simple, quiet, I'm singing under my breath. This is Sing with a very loud, triumphant voice. All right? Sing, O barren. And this is something that's interesting because to be barren in this period of time was the ultimate thing. I mean, ultimate in humility to a woman. They had to have children. Preferably a male child, but had to have children. And if they didn't, it was not a, it was not a place to be exalting. You, you hid your face. We see it. Sarah is de you know, depressed. She didn't have a husband. You know, she had a husband, but no child. And God had promised them a child. You know, she gets to be 98 years old and hasn't had her child yet. And God says, you're still going to have your child. You know, Elizabeth in the New Testament is praying for a child. And she's considered old and beyond years. And God tells her husband, you're going to have a child. You know, it was a big deal not to have a child. And God is telling Israel he's considering them barren. And they really were a barren people. When God told them to take him to the world, they said, no, we're the chosen people. We're going to sit back and just sit here and let, let all the other people go to hell because we don't care about them. Basically, I mean, they didn't put it that bluntly, but that's, you know, if you didn't want to become a Jew, they wanted nothing to do with you and you had to come to them. They didn't go out to you to try to get you to be a Jew. So they, were, they basically were barren. They weren't doing what God says. And he says, rejoice. Rejoice loudly. You that have barren, that did not bear, break into singing. And this is just joyful singing. This one is a different word. It's the same in English. It says sing and sing. But in Hebrew, it's one is that loud, triumphant joy. And this one is literally just singing with rejoicing. 
all right? And cry aloud. Now, this word for cry aloud is to cry really, to be in total distress. This is the picture of somebody who is just sobbing in total distress. They have nothing. And you that did not travail with child or have pregnancy. Any woman who's had a baby knows what this word, this word means because literally it means to, to wreathe with pain. All right? And that's what happens during childbirth. Uh, I was present with all four of my kids and I saw all that, <laughs> all that pain that was involved. Never realized my wife was as strong as she did until she just about broke my hand during one of the, <laughs> one of the contractions. You know, not literally, but I felt, you know, she never had the strength to be able to squeeze my hand that hard, and yet, uh, and yet I was, you know, crushed. And that's what it's talking about. Those who are in great pain, and then it's kind of this interesting statement: "For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife," says the Lord. This verse kind of reminded me of Mark chapter ten. And starting in verse uh, 28, then Peter began, began to say to him, Lo, we have left all to follow you. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brother or sister or father or mother nor wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands and, and with persecutions in the world that comes eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus told the disciples, you think, you think you've given up things? You haven't even begun to give up things because I am going to give you more than you have given up. And this is the great blessing of us as Christians. We never give up anything for Christ. It may look like we're giving it up, but God says, I've got a blessing for you that's much more deep you think your family's abandoned you? I'm going to give you a family. And we get a church family. And we get mothers, we get fathers, we get brothers and sisters to, to care for us and, and help us if we will allow them to. You know, God says, you think you've given up your possessions? I've got more than you could ever hope for. And that verse goes all the way back to Israel, saying, I've got more out there for you than you ever thought. Does that mean it's going to be all perfect and everything. Nope, we're going to go through suffering. But with that suffering in the long run comes blessings. Great help, great blessings that come with that, with that help. And this starts all the way back there. He says, you think you're, you think you're childless? You think you're, you have, you're barren? If you're following me, you have more than the most abundant married wife, which is, which is a good, beautiful blessing. I love the fact that I can go anywhere in the world or anywhere in the country, go to a church, and have family. I haven't done a lot of travel in recent years, but I used to do some traveling once in a while, and wherever I would go, I'd go to church, and I was home. And it was just nice. There was family. Didn't matter where I was. You needed something, you could get hold of the church and get, get taken care of. Uh, just want fellowship. You went to the church, and there were people that were family. And that's a beautiful thing. I've traveled around the world even since we got saved and, and found family members everywhere. Uh, a song that I probably want to introduce to the church is, you know, that talks about we're all family in the, in the, in the, in the uh, church. And one of the lines says, you know, we don't, look, we don't look alike, but each one of us are brothers and sisters. <laughs> you know, and it's a beautiful point because it really is. We can go someplace where the Spirit of God is and we are home instantly. 
Will we fit with every single person there? No, because every single person in a church is not necessarily saved and is not part of the family. But those who are saved and part of the family, you're going to be accepted on, and you're going to be, be able to be ministered with. Then he tells Israel, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of your inhabitation. Spare not, lengthen the cords, and strengthen your stakes. So this is kind of an interesting thing. He says you're going to get larger. You're going to get larger. And he's talking to Israel themselves and says you're going to get your whole borders. But he says he pictures it as the tent. And he says, make the tent large. He goes, enlarge the place of your tent. The tent was where they lived in that day. And he says, enlarge it. Enlarge your tent. So he's literally saying, just take and stretch those, stretch those sides out. <laughs> Lengthen the cords. Make them get pulled out real far. And put good deep stakes in there so that it doesn't pull back. Now, we don't really, most of us have never sent up tents. You know, in recent days, I used to go camping a lot, and I've set up tents. And, you know, you did. Sometimes you could pull them. You, could, you might get an extra foot on either side if you really stretched it. Uh, hopefully, you didn't have a lot of wind to pull your tent back in. Uh, today's tents don't stretch like that. Uh, the old-fashioned canvas tents, you could actually stretch them a little bit. And here he's saying, enlarge. Enlarge your dwelling place. And God does that for us as Christians. He gives us more room, more expansion, more influence. He tells us that we've, when we're his, his followers, we may stand before kings and princes, and we're just commoners. And I know many people who have done just that. I know them personally, uh, that have stood before ambassadors, prime ministers in, in foreign countries because they, God promoted them. And, you know, met people that they never expected to meet because God is the one that gives them their place. Not that they sought it. Most of them never thought it would happen at all. And yet, God blesses. And he says, expand. Expand your stretch. Stretch those tents out. Strengthen your, your str the stakes. And get, let it grow. Let it be getting large. And this is very important for us. Most of the time, we limit ourselves in the service of God, and don't go out and try to do more. And I've been there so often times with people going, would you do that? Nope, not me, I can't do that. Uh, well, I think God will get, give you the power, nope, not me, I'm not gonna do that. And you know, we wanna be very careful. If we're asked to do something in the church, we probably should at least, at least be willing to pray about it. Because if somebody's asking you, they're seeing something in you that you probably not seeing yourself. And been there many times. When I first was asked to teach Sunday school, I never even dreamed that it, that it would be me teaching Sunday school. Number one, I was young. I was 14 years old when I was asked to teach Sunday school. All right? And uh, I taught fourth graders, which means they weren't much younger than me. <laughs> and yet, I was asked to do it, and I have been teaching ever since. So what are we doing out there when people see a skill in us and talk to us and say, would you be willing to do something? Pray about it. At least try it. If you find out, uh, you try it for three or four months, five months, and you find out it's not for you, then you go, hey, it wasn't for me. You know, th those rugrats, I didn't like them at all. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that class, didn't like that at all. Whatever service it is, but other times we'll go, wow, I found something I can do and God's blessed it greatly. I never thought I'd be able to do it. And you never know until you get out and do it. I've heard many pastors talk about uh, 
you know, they just want people to try. Give it an honest effort. No, one week is not enough. Two weeks or, you know, a month, most of them have said just like I do. Somewhere between three to six months, let God really get, it, get hold of you. And if, you, if things don't work out, fine. You just say, nope, didn't work out for me. And you leave. You just might find your place when you go to do things. And so it's stretch out those, stretch out those borders. Pull them, pull them out. Be, be challenged. Nobody goes anywhere who just sits back and stays in their comfort zone. You know, I had, I've had employees that go, well, I want to be in management. I go, well, you're not showing me any management skills. And they'll go, well, if you just, if you just let me have the position, I'll show you. And I'll go, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you're going to show me that you have skills before I promote you to management. Because once I promote you, it's kind of too late if you don't have the skills. God wants us to kind of do the same thing. Step out and see if he's going to gift us. See if he's going to give you the gift. You may not. You may try lots of things and say, uh-uh, none of this stuff was for me. But one day you'll step into that one area and you go, this is it. This is what God gifted me for. This is what he's asked me to do. And you just keep enlarging your tent. And then you never know where God's going to take you to from there. <laughs> because he keeps expanding, expanding our borders. As we step out, he'll expand. And he will gift us to do what it is that he wants us to do. And a lot of times it's just stepping out. God, I don't think I can do this. First time I preached, I never, I was scared to death, you know, to, to preach. Because I was, again, a young, young man, our, the royal ambassadors took over the, took over the, took over the service, and I got to be the one that did the message. And my first message, and I was all set to preach, and I just practiced and practiced. I thought I had a 20-minute message. I got done in about seven minutes. <laughs> Just like, just, just like your one last night, yeah. But it's not uncommon. That is what happens. We get a little nervous. We get, you know, get a little, little uh, outside, and, uh, and nothing wrong with the message. It was just I rushed through it, you know, because I was completely nervous. It wasn't that I even had a lot to say. I did have a lot to say, but, I mean, I just rushed through from nervousness because I was about 15 years old teaching the adults. Because you know, I was preaching at the main service. But again, we step out. We say, God, help me. Since then, I've learned to be able to speak in front of large crowds without being nervous. And I love being in front of crowds. It's not a problem to me. So we look at this, and God says, enlarge. Enlarge your tent. Challenge yourself to go forward. Don't just get stuck. Because we as human beings have one of two sides. We either want to try to achieve for our own glory or... We just want to stay and not be humiliated. Don't ask me to do anything because I'm afraid to do anything. And that happens a lot of times with people. Well, just afraid. I'm not, you know, nope, nope, not going to do that. I'm not going to stand in front of a crowd. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to teach a Sunday school class. I'm not going to do whatever because that might just be terrifying and I might embarrass myself. So it's very important that we be very careful with that. Our hope has to be in God. Our desire has to be in God. But usually that stress really is, I don't want to embarrass myself and look bad, and then I will have a problem. And that's something that's very important. That's our problem as human beings. I don't want to do anything that makes me afraid that I might look bad. And Christ says we're to stand out for him. We're to walk in, walk in faith. We're to step out, which means oftentimes we're going to look like fools. Just preaching the gospel is speaking foolish to most people. They're going to look at us like we're crazy. 
What do you mean I go, all I do is got to confess my sins and accept Jesus Christ and I get to go to heaven? No, you, that's foolishness. God says that we, his, in his eyes we are perfect. We know we're not perfect. We know we've got problems, but we cannot get frozen because of that. We do, we, it's, it's kind of a catch on here. We need to see ourselves the way God sees us, and that's perfect. But by the same token, we also have to acknowledge, I'm going to make mistakes, but God sees me as perfect. Because if I always see myself as a sinner, I'll be paralyzed and afraid to do anything. When I see myself the way God sees me, perfect, redeemed, restored, his child, elected by God, uh, given the inheritance of the, of the Holy Spirit, you know, we, we did this study quite a while ago, 50, 53 things that happened to us at the moment of salvation. And there's a lot of, huh? 53 things that happened to us at the moment of salvation. There are 53 things that happened to us. Yeah. I'll give you the notes from that class. <laughs> we spent 53 weeks going through that, that lesson. One, one, one event per week. So your notes won't give you that much information, but they will give you verses. But there are things that happen to us. When we get saved, we are a new creation. We're, we're adopted into the God's family. He is our Father. You know, he gives us the Holy Spirit. We are, we are uh, promised uh, everything that God has. There's so much. And we need to really see ourselves the way God says we are. Knowing that we have problems. All right? Knowing that we have sin and everything, but knowing that God says something totally different about us. But the more we get to know what God says about us and believe it, the more we become what he says we are. And it's very important that we start thinking differently. And this is what happens. We get into God's word, we get into his truth, and we start letting him change who we are. He says that we're perfect. We need to be able to start understanding that we are. You know, God says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the washing of the word. God changes the way we think by getting into the word of God. And as we change the way we think, we start thinking more like him. We start acting more like him. And we start becoming who he says we are. And then people start looking at you and saying, boy, you're changing. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that thing that when somebody says, comes up to and says, you're not the same person you were a year ago, a month ago, two years, uh, ten years ago, whatever it might be, and that's where we know we're being changed. When we can look at our life and say, I don't do the, same, the things I used to do, I don't think the way I used to think, and we can look back, and it may, we, we're going to have to look back several months to a year to really see it. It's just like when your kids are growing up and you see them every day, you don't realize how big they're getting until you have to go to the store and buy clothes for them. But you go to the family reunion and you haven't seen your niece or nephew for a year or even a couple months and all of a sudden they're, you know, you remember them at three feet tall and now they're five feet tall. You go, wow, you have really grown. Well, so if your own kids, you just don't notice it because you see them every day. We don't necessarily see the growth in us because, number one, we know, the, we know what we think and how we are. But we also, because we see and get used to what we're, where we're at, we don't really recognize the growth until we look back and say, wow, if that had happened to me last year, I would have gone crazy. This, this year didn't even bother me, you know, or 10 years ago or however far you want to go back. But that is where growth comes in. And this is where God is saying, you're stepping forward. 
expand your borders, expand your tent. And then I love this for verse 3 says, For you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left hand, and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inherited. This pretty much is the picture of what happened to Israel in 1948. They were given desolate land, and before long, they were expanding to the east, to the west, to the north, and to the south. They were inhabiting the desolate lands. They were, getting, they were putting, watering the grounds and turning them into the, an oasis. And they inherited the Gentiles, and they will completely inherit the Gentiles during the Millennial Kingdom. But this has already started. They were given a very small piece of land in 1948. The enemy attacked them, and they expanded their land drastically by winning the battle and have not let go of that land since. What is the big thing that they're trying to do to, to Israel right now? Give up your land so we can give you, give you peace. They, don't, they won't give them peace anyway, but they're, you know, so they should not be giving up their land. Number one, God gave them the land. And we need to keep this in mind. God says to them, you're going to grow. You're going to get big. You're going to keep growing. Israel is God's people. Even though this is, a great ver this is a great section on how God deals with Israel, but we can look at it also to a degree on how God deals with us. Because he is going to let us expand. He lets those who follow him grow. The great revivals of this country have started with one or two churches in prayer and expanded out. The, the first great revival was just before we became a nation, and it started out in the churches, and it kept growing and growing. And we've talked about the revival before. The revival was such that the whorehouses, the saloons, and all these things closed down because nobody went there. Not because they made rules against, the, against them, but so many people were coming to God that they weren't going to the bar. They weren't going to all these you know, extracurricular activities, and the places just shut down. And many of them became churches. <laughs> Because the, the people who own them became Christians and said, well, I've got a big room here. Let's go ahead and open it, make it a church. Okay? The second great awakening in America was the same thing. Started with Jonathan Edwards in a church in Great Barrington, Pennsylvania, praying for revival and spread across the country. And the same thing happened. People got saved by the droves. Bars got closed. Uh, you know, the houses of prostitution got closed, not because, again, not because laws were being made, but because people's hearts were being changed. You know, we've seen this over and over again. Our prayer right now here in our church, if we've got that big long list, we're praying for God to have a revival. I would love for the revival to start here in chloride. I would love to see a third awakening starting in chloride. Now, is it, am I going to be disappointed if it doesn't start in chloride? No, I still want a revival. But wouldn't it be nice if it started here in chloride and spread out? I have seen changes in this town over eight years, big changes in this town over eight years. This town is not as dark as it was, not because of me, but because of what God is doing as we're teaching in, this, in, in here and teaching and bringing light to, the, light to the, this town. This town has a long ways to go, but it's still much better than it was eight, than eight, eight years ago because God is working. No, there's, there's been changes all over, so. Three bars, two of them are closed. Yeah, yeah, that is true. We used to have a bunch of bars. We used to have all kinds of drinking going on. And, you know, even, even the houses that had, were known as drinking houses are starting to fall, you know, fall by the wayside. 
you know, I don't know so much about the drug houses because I'm, I'm not even, I don't know the people in that world, but I am sure they're dwindling down as well. God is, yeah. God is on the yeah. move. God is on the move in this town. But that also means that when God is on the move, Satan is going to attack. And I've said this over and over. We need to be prepared for the counterattack from Satan because he is not just going to say, oh, well, lost that town. That's not his attitude. He is going to fight tooth and nail. He fights God, who he knows he can't beat, and he fights him tooth and nail. He's not going to, to let churches move against him and, and make changes without him fighting tooth and nail. He will lose as long as we keep focusing. We keep focusing on prayer. We keep focusing on salvation and watch what God is going to do. I'm looking forward. I love watching. I'm waiting for God to do a revival in this town that is just like nothing that's ever been seen in this town and see. I don't even care if it leaves this town. You know, I'd love it to leave this town, but I want to see our town be totally changed and become a place where God is on the move. That will, of course, move out. It couldn't, it couldn't do anything but move out. But I know that God's going to do something here. I'm looking forward to it. And we're going to pray for it. We're going to keep praying for it because most of the great revivals start with only two or three people praying and praying for it and praying for it. Great revival in Scotland started with two old widowed ladies that were so burdened for their town, they just started praying for it. And then all of a sudden they had an evangelist come in and a church exploded and took all of North, North Scotland <laughs> in a revival. We don't know what power there is out there. We, we, we tend to underestimate the power of prayer. You know, we often underestimate the power of prayer. You know, we even have a saying, I've tried everything else, I might as well pray. Well, let's turn that around. Let's pray and then do everything we can, but prayer needs to be first. And we're going to keep praying for a revival. We're going to keep praying for God to change lives. And I'm seeing so many lives changed of the people that have been in out of this church. The, the hard thing was is, is so many times people start getting, getting changed and moving, and then they move away. <laughs> so, but I'm waiting for God to do something here that is going to be more of a permanent activity. But it's got to be him. can't be us. And we're going to wait, and we're going to see, and we're going to keep expanding and watch what God does. In verse 4 it says, Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be you confounded, for you shall not be put to shame, for you shall forget the shame of your youth and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. So I love this. Fear not. God says you will not be put to shame. Now does that mean that we will not have anything that we do that bothers us and causes us? No, but he's saying your shame is not going to be something that hangs on to you. One of the things, and I, I heard this statement and I, the, the other day, and it, it really hit me. It says, do not let the poison of your past kill your future. Too many people are stuck with what has happened in the past as if God can't heal or give blessing on it. Don't let the poison of the past kill your future. And that's very important. That's really what this verse is, is basically saying. He says... Don't fear, you won't be ashamed, nor will you be confounded, which means be disconcerted. All right? Now, it is easy for us. As human beings, we get, we get ashamed and we get confounded all the time. You know, we, we're always worried because of our pride. Don't let me be looked bad. 
But I love this next part where he says, and you shall, uh, and you shall forget the shame of your youth. There are so many people that just won't let go of past mistakes. Won't, won't let go. They will, and this one literally, and I kind of find it very interesting, the forget here is cease to care. I don't care about my past anymore. The reason we can do that is God promises that all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Now, this is very important for us to understand. The word is all. Not some things, not most things, not only the good things. All things work together for good. I totally mess up my life by my mistakes and my problems and my sins, and God says I will still work all things together for good. Because we tend to think, well, God, you know, all those things back then, you can't do anything with them. God redeems everything. He takes the years that the canker worm has, has eaten and restores them. That means all the bad things you do, all the places where you have messed up in your life, God says, I have a plan of redemption for it. How can you do that? Because he's all God. He's all powerful. He already knows how he's going to make it work out. How can it work out as far as I'm concerned? Most of the time I have no clue. But God says, I can make it work out. And he promises us that he will. And it says, we will cease to care about those things. The more we are fixated on our past, the more we are frozen in our future. And we've said it so many times, most human beings are fixated on one side or the other. They're worried about what they have done or what they're going to do. So much so that we forget that we're living now. The only thing we have any control over is right this moment, and by the time I said it, that's gone. Okay? I have a very small period of time that I have any control over, and that's what's happened to me right at the moment that I'm living. Once it's past, I have no control over it. I cannot change anything that's past. We cannot worry about what has gone. God, it's up to God to redeem, and it's up to God to show us how it's going to be used. When we make a mistake, all we can do is apologize to the people and move on. When we've done anything right, all we can do is, you know, let move on. Because it's in the past. There are people who live in the past both good and bad. You know, and you'll hear it from older people. Back in the good old days when everything was perfect and we didn't have to lock our doors and I could walk to school and I didn't have to worry about, forget the past, it's over, it's gone. Live in today. Because you're so worried about the past and thinking about the past, you're forgetting that you're living in today and you're, all you're thinking about is how miserable today is because it doesn't match your, your dream and your imagination of what the past was. And we can do it also with the, good, the bad. Oh, things were just so bad. I've messed up my life so bad. I cannot live today. You know, I cannot get past my, my, my past life. God has forgiven it. If you're his... He's forgiven your past. Live in the moment. Know that he's got plans for you. No matter what it is that your past has in it, he forgives and says, we're going to move forward. And this is the important thing. No matter what happens, he says, walk with me. I've got a plan for you. We look at somebody like a, 
Gideon. Gideon's a scared, cowardly man, and God says, all right, Gideon, I want you to stand up for me. Gives him a really interesting first job, and that was to tailor down the, the, the idol of Baal in the city square. So he does it in the middle of the night when nobody's looking. Saying, okay, God, I'll obey you, but nobody's going to know that I did it. And then when they found out he did it, his father defended him. Then he's told, okay, I want you to take an, an army of Israel and go fight the 80,000-man 80, 80, 80, army. So he gathers everybody up and gets 30,000 men to fight 80,000. God says, well, you got way too many people. And he goes, okay. So he goes out and they do the, they do the thing of the stream and they're, they're, they're drinking water. And he goes, anybody who laid down and put their face in the water, they're gone. So he cuts his 30,000 army down to about 10,000 men. And God says, you still have too many people. You know, we go through all of this process and God leaves him with 300 people to go fight 80,000. All right? God does these kind of things and he says, he wants the credit. If we think we're going to go in so organized, so planned out, so full of plans that we cannot lose, God's going to say, ah, oh, this isn't working. This isn't going to happen. He will say, it's time to cut back. Why? Because he has to be exalted. Does that mean the plans are bad? No. We're getting ready for the parade on Saturday to pass out those bags. And we did a lot of planning. We did a lot of organization. We didn't just say, God, uh, we expect 500 bags to show up in the church one day. We went out. We gathered the stuff. We planned on it. But we evaded it in prayer and said, God, we want your, your blessing. Because right now we may be looking at rain on Saturday. <laughs> so I looked. There was like 30 or 40% chance of rain on Saturdays. Our plans are, how do, we do, how do we let God deal with things? And do we put our trust in him? If our trust is in him, really it doesn't matter what happens to me because we are not ashamed. If God puts us into great trials and tribulations, we don't feel the shame because we're trusting in him. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, many of the things that they went through was designed for shame. You know, designed to bring shame. They would march people naked through the, through the streets to their execution. Why? Because they knew for a Christian that was a terrible thing to be doing to them. And yet they would, they would go head held high because they were serving God. You know, are we looking at God or are we looking at our situations? It's easy to look at the situation. We walk by sight. And it says, the just shall live by faith. And there's four places in the Bible that God reiterates, the just shall walk by faith. So I think he means it. He does not want us looking by sight and saying, God can't do that. No, too many, too many enemies, too much trials, too much troubles. He says, but I've told you to do it. We need to learn to walk in, our, in the spirit. Walk with God and say, God, I'm just going to trust you. I may look like a fool to everybody, but you're telling me to do it. I may look like a total idiot to everybody, but I'm going to go out and do it. Now, there's a fine line between being an idiot and looking like an idiot, all right? There's certain things that we're not to go out and do, but, you know, if God tells us to do it, do it. If God is telling you to go out and, and witness to somebody and you're going, uh-uh, not that person, well, you better go out and talk to that person. But he says, we're to forget the shame of our youth and we're not to remember the reproach of your widowhood, he says. And, and widowhood, again, was one of those things. Israel was considering themselves forsaken by God. And God has been, early on in chapter 49, God said, uh, 
when is it that I divorced you? When did I divorce you, Israel? Yes, I've tossed you, I've let some bad things happen to you to try to get your attention, but I never divorced you. God will never get rid of his children. Once we are saved, we're his. Now, he may discipline. He may make us feel like we're forgotten because we're, our eyes are on ourselves and we're, and we're following our emotions. And it's very important that we do not follow emotions. We need to follow God's truth in his word because our emotions lie to us more often than not. I feel happy, so I'm happy. Okay, great. That just means a bunch of good things have happened to you, but what, are you, are you enjoy, do you have joy when bad things happen to you? Are you in contentment when bad things happen to you because God is still in charge? Or am I totally depressed because everything's not going my way? This is a critical thing for us to understand. My truth and life must be in the truth of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Truth. We look at truth. Satan comes and reminds us about how awful we are, and we go, you know what? I, you, by, by my actual fact and experience, you're right, but the truth is God has forgiven me, and I am, I am perfect. That's the truth. I can wallow in my self-pity for how bad I am, or I can rejoice in the truth that I am forgiven, and that God sees me as perfect. We must live our life in truth no matter what the facts say. And this is kind of, kind of an interesting place. Satan comes with facts. You're terrible, you're miserable, you make lots of mistakes. Yes, you're right, but God says, God says, and he's true, he says, I'm perfect. Satan can't answer the, the truth because he's a liar. He'll present facts and he'll twist those facts to look worse than they are. We see this during our season. At four, every, every two years we have elections going on and we see politicians twist, and, twist facts and, and make the, somebody look worse than they are or make themselves look better than they are. Over and over again, Satan does the same thing to us. He takes the facts and he twists them to make us look worse than we are. And, he, and we fall for it so often. And we wallow in our self-pity because of how awful we are and not live in the truth that God has forgiven us. And God's saying, forget about the past. You've, it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. Does that mean there's no consequence for doing wrong? No, I've, already, I've said that so many times. There are consequences. When we do wrong, there are consequences. Sometimes God steps in and blunts the consequences. But we always have blunts the consequences. Don't let, doesn't let them come through or makes it smaller than, they, than what we deserve. But that's not the normal. There's consequences, and he says you're going to face consequences. Supernaturally, he'll come in and say, okay, you deserved, you deserved uh, to lose your job, but I'm going to let you keep your job this time. Don't do it again. You deserve to, to, be, you know, to have a huge fine. We're going to give you mercy in the courts. You never know what it is that he's going to do for you, and sometimes he gives us great mercy, and sometimes he says, okay, you get to, you get to catch the full brunt of what you've done. And usually, the full brunt teaches us a whole lot more than mercy does, which is why he lets the brunt of the brunt, full, full brunt fall on us most times. If we are ready and willing to say, God, I deserve punishment, but would you please be merciful and recognize that that is mercy, we can, he may be able to just say, okay, I'm going to give you mercy. 
He gives us mercy more often than we deserve. Because if it was, if it was deserved, it wouldn't be mercy. <laughs> so he gives us mercy lots of times. But at the same time, he also lets things happen to us and say, okay, you did this. Now's the, now's the consequences. You're going to face them. Somebody goes out and gets drunk and decides to drive and wraps their car around a tree or a telephone pole and ends up with injuries. Maybe they didn't die. Maybe they didn't even lose a limb, but they end up with injuries that they face consequences for for the rest of their life. You know, all these things happen. You know, and I picked that one because it's the easiest one to people know. But there's consequences for everything we do. And God says, most of the time, he's going to let the consequence come. Because the consequence is a constant reminder not to do it again. And so he lets it happen. And he says, don't be in shame because of it. Learn from it, but go forward. Don't be, don't be bound up by it. You know, when God forgives us, we need, to, we need to forgive. And I've heard so many people go, well, God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. To me, that is one of the most arrogant statements that you could ever possibly make. The God of the universe can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself? That is a terrible arrogancy to be putting in, and actually it is idolatry. The God of the universe can forgive me, but you know, my standards are so much higher than God's standards, I can't, I can't forgive myself. That's a terrible place to be. And when we really start understanding our attitude that's behind that, should change it. God, you forgave me? Help me learn to you know, help me forgive myself. Because I've heard people, they'll forgive others much faster than they will forgive themselves. And a lot of that is because we know, we know our attitude when we did wrong. So we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. Like, God didn't know our attitude when we did wrong. God knows everything. He knows exactly why we did it. He knows the rationale we did to make it. And still he forgives us. He forgives us while we're his enemy. He forgave us before we even confessed it. You know, we need to be able to get to this place where God, I, teach me to learn forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Is to forget about. If you're always reminding yourself about something in the past and you say you've forgiven it, you have not. If you're always remembering that somebody has done something wrong to you, you have not forgiven them. If you're talking about it to other people, You've definitely not forgiven them. And even worse, you're getting other people to think bad about somebody, somebody because of what you've said. And what's really bad, and I've said this over and over again, how many of us know that we're mad at somebody because they hurt a friend of ours and we don't even know the person? Okay. I had somebody say, I've heard so many bad things about this person that I don't like them. Have you ever met them? Nope. Do you know anybody else who's ever talked about them and may not have the bad experience with them? Nope. What's really funny is when they meet that person without knowing who they are and like them and then find out it's the person that they're mad about because their friend has told them all these bad things about them. And they realize that that friend has not been so nice to them because that friend, one, one of the things we try to do is make others dislike people we dislike or dislike things that we dislike. And somehow we feel like it's vindicating us. All right, others agree with me. Well, they agree with you because they don't know the situation. They don't know both sides of a story. One of the things I had to learn when I was talking to people is I cannot make a decision on one side of the story. Because you listen to one side of the story and you're, you know, you know, this husband and wife are having a real hard time and you listen to one side of the story and you go, man, that person's a terrible, awful person. You get the other side of the story and go, 
well, maybe you're not as off. That person really bad. You know, you've got to be able to hear both sides of the story and find the truth between both sides of the story to try to come to an actual answer. And so we need to be very careful. Are we sharing? Are we talking about somebody? Are we trying to make somebody else look bad? We have not forgiven that person. We have got to be able to sit back and say, you just need to stop. You, know, you need to stop. And we need to stop talking about it. We need to stop thinking about it. Because to totally forgive something, we're not going to totally forget anything. But if you want to not, for, not forget something, keep remembering it. Keep thinking about it all the time, and you're going to bring it to the forefront of your mind. Because we technically can never forget. It's in our brain somewhere. But you know, how important it is to us. Talk to somebody about, you know, even right here, what did you have for dinner last week? You know, most people can't remember what they had for dinner last week because it's not that important to them. They weren't thinking about it unless it was a very special dinner, you know, special event, and then, they, then they're thinking about it and keeping it in mind or a really bad event. <laughs> but, you know, what we remember is what we recall. I remember this. I recall it. So if you're going to be recalling things, remember, recall the things God has done for you. Don't recall the things that have hurt, hurt you. Because that's human nature. Human nature is to recall the things that are hurting you and the bad things. In a, in a husband and wife's relationship, they got married hopefully because they loved each other and, and at least liked each other when they got married. Then things happen and they start rehearsing all the bad things that have been going on. And they start forgetting the good. And they're focused nothing but the bad. And, and all of a sudden they're wondering why they ever married this person, you know, why they ever liked this person. But if they can go back and remember the good, they can start overriding all the bad, and they can start saying, well, this person's not as bad as I thought. The more we concentrate on the good things, the better things look. And the more we see other good things, the more, the more we concentrate on the bad, the more everything looks bad and, and miserable. You know, and I love it. I go to work, and people are talking about the rain this morning. Oh, it's terrible out there. I go, what's wrong with the rain? It's wonderful. We need the rain. It's a great great thing. You know, I, I've lived in places where it rained all, year, all winter long. You know, every day of the week, it rained, rained during winter. This is nothing. So we get wet once, one, once or twice in the winter. <laughs> you know, why are we looking at the negative? I tell people all the time, I choose to have a good day. That's my attitude. I want to have a good day. Doesn't matter that the car tire went flat that morning and it wouldn't, and the car, and the, and the second car wouldn't start, and I got to work late. I'm still going to have a good day. <laughs> I'm going to have a good day because God has a plan. And for us as Christians, it's really easy to have a good day. God has a plan for our life. Even when everything seems to be going wrong, God has a plan for our life, and where He's, and we can have a good day because God's in charge. The world, they don't have such hope. If they're having a bad day, they're having a bad day, and there's nothing in charge of that world to give them a good day. We as Christians, God is in control. He's promised that everything will work together for good. If I concentrate on just those two things, I'm going to have a good day. I'm looking forward. God, what, what have you got in store for me? You know, God, I don't understand why my, car was, my tire, tire was flat and the, car and the battery wouldn't start, but you've got something in store for me today. And I've said many times... Romans 8.28 is my verse. All things work together for good. And many times I'll turn to God and go, God, I have no idea how you're going to turn this to good, 
but I trust that you're going to make it good and go forward from that point. Because it's so easy to say, well, everything's miserable and, you know, there's been such a bad day, nothing good can happen today and have a bad day the rest of the day. And miss the opportunities God puts to us. Sometimes we get so wrapped up on what's going around us that we miss the opportunity to talk to somebody about God, to share God with somebody because we're so wrapped up in how miserable our day has been and we miss the opportunity to talk to somebody. We need to be careful with our attitude. Attitude is going to kill us more so often if we let a bad attitude in. We need to have that attitude. God, you're in control. You're going to make things good. You get that attitude towards your life and you're going to be looking for the good and good in your day. And it's so fun. It is a lot of fun. When our eyes are focused on God, it's fun to walk through the trials <laughs> because I'm focused on him. Just like when Peter climbed, climbed out of the boat in the middle of the storm and walked on the water. As long as he looked at Jesus, he was okay. But all of a sudden, he looked at the storm. He looked at the wind or heard the wind. He looked at the waves. And at that point, he's realizing, hold it, I can't walk on. His first problem was, you know, I'm out here in the middle of a storm. What am I doing out here in the middle of a storm instead of in a nice, safe place? His next thought would have been, hold it, I'm walking on water. I can't walk on water. And as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, everything was now negative, And he started sinking. At least he had knew to call out to Jesus. And Jesus picked him up and put him back in the boat. Same thing can happen to us. When we're in the middle of a storm in our life and we're focused on Jesus, we walk through that storm, get to the other side, and kind of look back and go, wow, there's a lot of storm debris back there. What happened? And then we might be able to realize that we just walked through the middle of a storm. Other times, we're not focused on Jesus and a little, little puff of air is knocking us off the path and you know, not even a storm, but just uh, little things are knocking us clean off the path because our eyes are focused on the events of our life and not on God. Our challenge is to keep focused on God. Keep our eyes on Him. Keep our mind on truth. Because Satan is good. He's been practicing for a long time and he's tricked even the very perfect parents that we had in the Garden of Eden. He tricked them. They did not have a sin nature and he tricked them into sinning. And he's been practicing ever since. He's been practicing ever since to lie and deceive. And he's good at it. And we're not going to beat him at it. All we can do is focus on God and let God beat him. Because God will always win. So we keep our focus on him. Verse 5 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. I love this. This tells Israel, the Lord is your husband. For us as the church, Jesus is the husband. The husband that will protect the wife, will love his wife, care for his wife. He says, God is your husband, Israel. He says, not only that, he gives himself all kinds of wonderful names. The Lord of the host is his name. The Lord of the army. God is victorious. He has never lost a battle out there. What a great army to be part of. You know, we get to, we get to the end days, during the tribulation period. We go to heaven. We get to celebrate with Jesus for seven years while the earth is having trouble. We come back and Satan gathers the whole world to fight against Jesus as he comes back. 
and we come back with him, and all he does is speak a word, and the battle's over. You know, I, uh, he's, uh, Elijah, his house is surrounded by the enemy. They're coming to arrest him. His servant is all fearful, and Elijah says, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And the servant's eyes are opened, and around the army that circles his house is the entire host of heaven circling that army. So he's like, you know, hey, we got a lot more people. We got a lot more people on our side. We need to keep this in remembrance. One third of the angelic host fell with Satan. That means that the angels to, to demon ratio was two to one. For every one demon, there's two angels. God is outnumbering Satan every day, and he lets his angels protect us. Do we all have a guardian angel? I'm not sure whether we do or not. I'm not going to go that far, but when we need an angel, God's got an angel here for us. If we need five or six angels, he's going to give us five or six angels. He will give us what we need for victory as long as we're not going to get fearful and look, look elsewhere. If we choose to go the wrong way, he, they're going to let us go the wrong way and suffer the consequences, but he can also protect us in some ways that we're never going to be able to understand and keep us. Do angels exist? Yes. Do they do things? Yes. And I've, said, I've given the story. My, my wife was driving one day, and the tie rod broke on the car. And if you know anything about cars, you cannot steer a car when the tie rod's broken. She made a 90-degree right turn, a 90-degree left turn, and another 90-degree left turn to pull into a parking space. How do I know she made those turns? The tie rod dug a hole in the road on each of those turns. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, there's no way that you made these turns. She, she will laugh and say she'll know her angel when she gets to heaven because he's going to have the grease strains from, turn, <laughs> from, from turning her wheel to get her, get her in that parking space. You know, we know that an angel had to have done something for that for that event, because you do not make three three ninety degree turns with no tie rod. So, do they exist? Absolutely. Does God still do miracles? Absolutely. That's a pretty small miracle, all things considered. But God still does miracles. I've seen people being healed. You know, I've seen somebody who was on the heart transplant list. He was on the top ten of the list, and God healed him. He did not need. Did never got his heart transplant. He came back into church that next day and he comes running up and down and all around the church because he was so happy that his heart was working. God still does miracles. He still heals. There's times when I'm sure he's done a very small miracle up there in our food where there's not enough food and everybody leaves full. Okay, because not a lot of food came in. Is it a miracle? Absolutely. Jesus fed the multitude with five loaves and, and, uh, and three fish you know, and multiplied it. I've seen that happen on more than one occasion. God still moves today. Are most of the miracles real huge, phenomenal miracles? Not necessarily, but he moves, and he creates miracles. And if we're not looking for the miracle, we won't see it. We won't see him reaching out and touching people. We won't see it if we're not looking for it. And God is out there saying, forget about the past. Forget about what you think you know about the past, because even what we think we know, we don't know. All right. What, what I think about what's happened in the past is not valid in most cases. And usually if I get far enough away from it, it'll be revealed to me that I, don't, I didn't understand it at all. God had a plan. 
And we'll sit back and go, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand what. And God says, I'll show it to you someday, maybe. Maybe in heaven he'll show it to us. But there is all this stuff going on that we think we understand. And God says, you don't even begin to understand what's going on. You don't understand what's happening in this world because we don't see it from the spiritual. We see from the physical. God says, I see so much more than you're seeing. I know things because he knows it completely. He knows it from the beginning to the end. He knows it from when it started to well, it's going to end. And says, you, know, you don't worry about it. You know, a decade from now, you'll, really, you'll see the results of this event. And he says, but I see it now. I see it now. I know what the end result. I work out of the prison, and so many of those guys out there that have come to Christ will say the same thing over and over. Prison is what changed their life because they were finally broken and turned to God. Now, is prison the way for everybody to get that way? No. <laughs> but for some people that were so bad off, it took that to get them to change. God will do to us whatever it takes to get us to see him. The best thing for us is to learn to accept him real easy and say, God, thank you. I don't want to have to go through all those headaches. But if we're going to be so stubborn that we have to go through the hardships, he's going to take us through the hardships. Yeah. Been there myself. I, I've shared with you. There was a time when I fought with God for six years over a topic. <laughs> six years. I'm stubborn. You know, I, I can be very stubborn. And I made plans, and I made all kinds of ways to get out of that trouble, and God messed up every single plan <coughs> because he wanted me to surrender to him. Finally, I surrendered to him, and it was the only time I really feel like I heard something from God, and I heard about time. <laughs> and instantly, something I had been fighting for for six years was cleaned up. Okay? And it wasn't a great big thing, but it was something that I was not ready to surrender to God. I wanted to do it my way. And God says, fine, you keep trying to do it your way, and I'll keep fighting against you. I've gotten better over the years. I don't usually fight with God more than a week or two. <laughs> All right? And I'm getting better that I can almost say, God, yes, today, I'm going I'm to surrender. But I don't fight with him for long, long periods of time, because the one thing I have learned over 40 years... 48 years, God wins. He wins and he does not give up. He is going to win, so it is better to learn just to surrender to God quickly. Now, most of us are thick-headed and have to learn the hard way and have him keep beating, beating us up and beating us down and beating us down. And then we finally give up and say, wow, that was so easy when I gave up. And then we go to this, the next problem and you know, we're supposed to learn and, go, and re, re, uh, turn, it, turn to him quickly. How often do we not? And we just have to keep learning the hard way. It gets easier and easier with the practice. It only took me 48 years to get better at it. <laughs> but I'm still not there. I am better. I'm not quite as stubborn as I used to be. But we need to be able to get hold of this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. It's so easy for us to try to say, God, that doesn't make any sense. And God says, of course it doesn't make sense. It's my plan. <laughs> you know, you're, not, you're not smart enough to be able to make sense of what God, God thinks of. He is so much 
wiser than we are. He is so much smarter than we are. He is so much stronger than we are that it makes no sense to do things his way, but he can outthink us in so many ways that we might as well just surrender. And the more we learn to surrender to him quickly, the better off we are and the less consequences we have to face. I fought with God for six, six years and my family suffered because of me being stubborn. The head of the house and I made my family suffer because I was being stubborn. You know, mothers can do this to their kids too. <laughs> you know, be so stubborn with God and their kids suffer. Fathers can do this. I'm in an even more dangerous place being a pastor because if I get stubborn with God as a pastor, the church will suffer. I don't want to have that happen. I'm trying very hard to ask God, help me never to be stubborn on anything that relates to the church or in my own life as much as possible, but definitely nothing that relates to the church because I don't want my people to suffer because of my stubbornness. And because I am a very stubborn person, I had to be very careful. I'm a manager. I like to do things myself. I like to make decisions and quick decisions and not necessarily ask God what the decision is. So I have to make plans and say, God, I want you in the midst of all of this. And we're all in that boat where we need to come to God and say, God, I need you. I want your thoughts. I want your plans because he is the redeemer. The redeemer, the one that buys us back. And he is the God of the whole earth. This is a statement that Israel did not understand. They did not like that idea. They were the called and chosen people. God had called Abraham and, and chosen them. Out of all the world, they were chosen. They did not like the idea that God was the God of the world. They understood it. He created everything. He was the God. But you had to do it their way. They couldn't ask God to bless all people. So when Jesus came and, and was brought God to the world, to the Gentiles... We don't really understand what a big deal that was for, for Paul to go to the Gentiles and preach, for Philip to go to the Gentiles to preach, for Andrew to go to the Gentiles to preach. That went against their grain. The Jewish belief is the Gentiles were born to go to hell. Plain and simple. God just filled the earth with a whole bunch of people to send to hell because they weren't Jews. That was the way they acted. And that's the way they behaved. And our the disciples had a hard time with this. We, we think about Jonah. And you know the story of Jonah, how he, well, God told him to go to Nineveh, and he said, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. He was brought to, why did he not want to go to Nineveh? Nineveh was Gentiles. And worse yet, they were the enemy of the Jews fighting against the Jews. And God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them so that they'll repent. And if, you, and if they don't repent, they're going to be destroyed. And Jonah saying, good, let them get, let them get killed. It's great for our country. You're, if our enemies die, it'll be great for our country. That was his attitude. He had it right from his mindset, doing things his way. He was making the best decision. Oh, God, you're going to destroy Nineveh? Great. Go ahead and destroy Nineveh. That'll get rid of our enemy. But that wasn't God's heart toward Nineveh. God says, I want them saved. I want them to come to me. That was hard for Jonah to even, even contemplate. And yet God made him go preach to them. And then he was mad that God, God uh, forgave them. Uh, when you read this last part of the story, he sits up on the mountain waiting for God to destroy the city and gets mad that God doesn't destroy the city. After he's preached to them and they repented. 
One of the greatest revivals in all of history. 10,000 people get saved and one in the entire town gets saved and he gets mad at God for saving the town. He says, God, I knew you were merciful and would forgive them. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place. You know, how many times do we do that kind of things to God? God, I knew you were going to be nice to that person. I wanted that person to suffer. I didn't want to forgive that person because they deserve to suffer. Well, you know what? God can turn around and say, you deserve to suffer too, and I forgave you. That's why we are to forgive others. Yes, maybe they deserve to suffer. Maybe they are terrible, awful people. But God still loves them. And we're to forgive our enemies. And that is not an easy thing to do. As a matter of fact, for us in the flesh, it's an impossible thing to do. Without God, we cannot forgive an enemy. We have enough trouble forgiving friends. And we are not going to be loving and forgiving of enemies. And yet God says, that's what I want. That's what makes us stand out as Christians. Our kindness, our love to people that we don't like, or worse yet, don't like us. And we want to go, well, God, that person deserves to, to burn. That person deserves to have everything go wrong in their life. How come that's not happening? And God says, because I love them. I love them, and I'm giving them enough rope, enough time to hang themselves. And that's what God does. He's given everybody, when they stand before the white throne judgment, they're not going to be without, without guilt. God will say, you're, you're getting what you deserve, and you know that what you deserve, because they're going to have plenty of opportunity to have seen love to see people care for them, to know that God loved them, and know that they've rejected God. So that when they stand before the white throne judgment, then God says, you could have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ instead of your own righteousness, but you rejected it. And you know, sometimes it's hard. It is hard. I'm going to admit, it is hard to watch somebody that's a real mean, nasty person seeming to get blessed and have everything go right. And you're going, God, I don't understand this at all. How can somebody that mean and nasty seem to have everything go right? But if you really were walking in their shoes, you would probably find out that things aren't going right for them. They feel the guilt. They feel the ang anguish. They may not be as happy on the inside as they're trying to make people think they are. And we've all, most of us have been there ourselves, especially people who got saved later in life. They know this feeling where they're trying to play that they're all happy that they're enjoying their, their drinking and their drugging and everything, and they're miserable. They're not finding what they want. But they're putting on a happy face in front of everybody. Ah, let's go have party. We're going to go party and forget, forget everything. And they end up in just emptiness. And their heart is empty. That is when they're most vulnerable to the gospel message. And yet sometimes we're sitting back, uh-uh, I'm not going to talk to them. God, they don't deserve you. Which is an arrogance on our side, too, if we're saying they don't, they, they don't deserve you because we didn't deserve him either. Even if we weren't really that bad by human standards, we still didn't deserve God. And we need to be able to reach out to people and show love. Sarah, when you were speaking on your testimony the other day, I loved it that you said the church has loved you and not judged you on it, and I love that testimony for our church. Because I want that to be our testimony of the church, that we're not judging people, that we're not, we're not criticizing people and telling them when you get right, you can come to church. I want people to know that they're welcome here. I know everybody's got sins. We've all got problems. Even when, we're, even when we're Christians, we still have sins and problems we have to deal with. We want to learn to give grace to one another and love one another and build up one another and let others see that love so that they will recognize that this is a place where God reaches out.
and touches lives. We're going to close here because I'm past time. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much and that you care for us. We ask that you go with us and show us what you would like us to do each day, that you will help us. Lord, teach us to love each other more. Teach us to be able to be forgiven, forgiving. Help us to know what it means to forgive and teach us to forgive. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.